I prepared my remarks before hearing all the terrific presentations that we had this morning, which I was very humbled by the degree of expertise and creativity uh, that were on display here. So uh, I'm going to sort of play with my remarks as I go and try to uh, refer to the things we've heard so it's not just uh, uh, having a sense of, 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 uh, of being in any sense can't. But let me start with the observation that um, the, uh, an official purpose of the District of Columbia Historic Landmark and Historic District Protection Act is to, quote, to retain and enhance historic landmarks to encourage their, and to encourage their adaptation for current use. Uh, so this statement, of course, emphasizes that historic preservation is not intended to freeze things or inherited cultural fabric in a particular uh, time zone, uh, but to save it by adapting it to current uses. And what I would like to do in my talk is to suggest that we need to preserve historic preservation law itself uh, by adapting it to the needs of our time and the foreseeable future. Um, uh, historic preservation law really addresses contemporary concerns about losing connection with the built legacy of the past. It's about how the material legacy, uh, that material legacy and the meanings it conveys uh, can enhance the communities in which we live and where we will live going forward. So historic preservation was one of the most successful uh, legal and political movements of the second half of the 20th century growing from the preoccupation of a few committed enthusiasts to a pervasive regulatory system which covers all federal programs and much private urban development. And despite concerns expressed this morning, I think it is still fair to say that never has historic preservation been more powerful or pervasive than it is today. Uh, its many cultural and urbanistic benefits uh, suffer only by being taken for granted by the public at large. At the same time, it's been subject to new forms of criticism, some oddly misinformed, but some raising legitimate concerns about the legal movement, which is certainly has expanded beyond what its warmest founders could have anticipated. Thus, this talk will try to uh, identify some fruitful future adaptations for historic preservation law, particularly as it pertains to land use regulation our growing cities with some particular look at climate change. Uh, and these are going to be from an altitude of 10,000 feet. Uh, and uh, so all of this is designed to stimulate more conversation and, uh, uh, and, and discuss how to go forward. I want to talk a little bit about the history of historic preservation law to sort of put the present time in context. Uh, historic preservation didn't even exist as a concept until the modern era. Uh, several large-scale social and cultural changes had to occur before the preservation of older buildings and sites could be considered to be a legal requirement. Uh, there need to be some shared sense that a fundamental change in material culture was occurring. And Professor Joe Sachs uh, attributed the first arguments in favor of government efforts uh, to um, uh, protect buildings to, uh, uh, to the French Revolution and the work of Abbe Gregoire uh, who was concerned about iconoclasm and demolition, and particularly of churches, uh, during the French Revolution. In the later 19th century, the forces of industrialization, urbanization, and population growth transformed the physical characteristics of cities to an unprecedented extent. Uh, old landmarks swept away, countryside becoming urban, 
new larger structures such as railroad yards, factories, and tenements dominating uh, the new cities. Uh, so social life also changed in the 19th century. The traditional hierarchies weakened and were replaced by a new social order reflecting economic change and democratic aspirations. Dramatic population growth, enhanced mobility, large-scale immigration, uh, all marginalized aesthetic and, aesthetic and cultural norms that had supported established ways in the remembered past. Americans in the mid-19th century uh, sought to preserve places that evoked the, Democrat, the patriotic sentiments of the founding period exemplified by the uh, preservation of uh, George Washington's home at Mount Vernon by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association in 1859. Traditional elites, uh, such as New England Brahmins, uh, feeling that their status had eroded, sought to retain and restore buildings that projected an image of their culture that could endure and influence newcomers. Early urban efforts at preservation uh, in, uh, aimed at individual buildings, such as uh, Paul Revere's house in Boston or New York City's City Hall, reflected a similar desire to project an enduring narrative of patriotic and civic virtue. Also in this period, uh, secular notions of time and place became culturally dominant. Uh, most people came to assume that time moved in a single linear direction and that time passed was time lost. Uh, earlier and more religiously uh, infused concepts of time had been cyclical, uh, like the seasons or the Christian liturgical year, or closely connected with unchanging but accessible divine or ideal realms that were outside of change. Uh, similarly, cities had been organized around sacred sites very frequently, uh, uh, such as temples or churches, orienting public space around culturally shared meanings. The triumph of the street grid, adopted for purposes of mobility and commerce, signaled the eclipse of any sense of a transcendent meaning in cities. Preservation uh, of historic sites are a means to keep open sensual and imaginative access to a past ever disappearing from public memory. Thus, it fosters a shared sense of cultural depth in a disenchanted city. Um, finally, the sense of control of change through private initiative and legal reform had to become plausible. The rise of the social sciences promoted the idea that physical environments form character and reformers sought to shape the urban environment to address social and physical disorder, giving rise to tenement laws, urban parks, and cultural institutions such as museums and symphony orchestras. These ambitions increased during the progressive era and the advent of zoning provided a hint as to how the law could control private development, although zoning itself generally, Charleston, let, let's make an exception for Charleston, uh, don't address demolition or architectural form. So historic preservation law has taken many forms over time. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, laws had to develop to allow nonprofits to acquire and own property, and Virginia took a lead in that by chartering the Mount Vernon Ladies, uh, Ladies Association. Um, the Supreme Court had to decide that the United States had authority to acquire land at the Gettysburg battlefield uh, in order to preserve it from inappropriate development. In 1906, Congress passed the Antiquities Act, which dealt with the public lands uh, and set, set some aside as protection for 
historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest. And specialized zoning laws then regulating uh, demolition and material changes began to develop in southern cities, particularly Charleston and New Orleans in the 1930s and 1940s. Okay, so that's sort of the, in some sense, the sort of the early history of preservation. But preservation really took off uh, later in the 20th century. Uh, you have the accelerating effects of urban change, uh, the homogenizing effect of national markets, giant firms and pervasive media, uh, uh, post-war urban renewal, which aggravated uh, economic and social changes as large-scale demolitions seeking greater mobility and economic efficiency plowed through the centers of historic cities. So the modern history of historic preservation really commences with New York City's Landmarks Preservation Act of 1965 and the passage of the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966. The Landmarks Preservation uh, Act uh, imposed real substantive limits on demolition and alteration in the most bare-fisted uh, real estate market uh, in the United States. An amazing no moment, which had long been in gestation. There's some really interesting historical work on the prehistory of the Landmarks Preservation Act. Uh, familiar triggering acts were the demolition of Pennsylvania Station in 1963. Um, and the efforts of uh, the Brooklyn Heights neighborhood to resist Robert Moses' plans for urban renewal uh, in, in their neighborhood. Uh, so under the Landmarks Preservation Act, uh, the designation of landmarks and historic districts are entrusted primarily to a separate expert agency, the Landmarks Preservation Commission, subject only to what is proved to be a very rare political veto. Uh, now, the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 created a national policy of preservation and created a cooperative federal-state process that raises consciousness, creates a process that has to be followed before uh, buildings can, uh, adverse effects of federal undertakings uh, can, be, can be permitted. And we had some good discussion of the weaknesses of that act, but it did create this tiered and layered system uh, of federal, state, and local, and tribal, uh, tribal uh, regulation uh, here. All of this was part of the Great Society Initiative uh, of, the, of the 1960s. All right, so the legal scope of preservation crystallized in the Supreme Court's 1978 decision in Penn Central Transportation versus City of New York, without doubt the most important historic preservation decision in history. All of you know who've had property law that the court there uh, held that the refusal of the New York uh, Commission to permit Penn Central to erect a 50-story office tower atop uh, the historic terminal did not affect an unconstitutional taking of Penn Central's property. And the decision is very well known for the creation of a fact-sensitive, fairly tolerant approach to regulatory limitations on property development, but it also is a crucial turning point in the scope and power of historic preservation law, a topic I'm developing at length in another paper. The short version here is that circumstances created an extremely broad holding that liberated preservation regulation essentially from constitutional property challenges. It erased any doubt about the facial validity of historic preservation as a basis for regulating property. Um, it, uh, it afforded historic district regulations the same deference of federal constitutional law that had been long afforded zoning regulations. It rejected persistent critiques about the fairness of placing individual landmarks 
uh, under preservation protection, even in central cities where property values uh, are, are immense. And it set a baseline for owner's economic loss uh, at the point of the owner's reasonable investment-backed expectations, which is a, a baseline that's remarkably favorable for historic preservation, given that that tries to preserve the aesthetic form that embodied the owner's original expectations for the property. So the consequence of all this is that an end to virtually all constitutional restraint on federal constitutional restraint on historic preservation law. And carried along by broader economic and demographic trends, Historic preservation laws have become ever stronger and more ubiquitous. But we heard this morning, it is very uneven and very different in different parts of the country. And uh, I'm reflecting on listening to a lot of accounts about Virginia, I'm reflecting on how uh, uh, sort of northeastern-centric my, uh, my, my, my paper is, and I, uh, and, but that's a good thing for me to, to, to appreciate. Um, in 2007, the National Park Service estimated that there are more than 2,300 local preservation ordinances in the U.S. They haven't been able to find more recent data. Many communities have designated numerous historic districts. New York City itself protects 36,000 buildings uh, as either individual landmarks or parts of historic districts. 20% of Washington, D.C. buildings are covered by very strong historic pr protections. Charlottesville, I read, has 10 historic districts, although the, 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 uh, the severity of those uh, vary greatly. And as we've heard, uh, very difficult to have limitations on demolition uh, in, in Virginia. And the upside in historic preservation has been global. Um, uh, 187 nations have ratified the 1972 UN World Heritage Convention. And more than 1,000 sites are now on the World Heritage List, which of course include the Jefferson Buildings at the University of Virginia. So the growth of historic preservation regulation of private property has coincided with an urban revival really without precedent in US history. New York City was insolvent at the time the Penn Central case was, was decided. And when I began teaching land use law 30 years ago, the whole discussion was about the hollowing out of cities uh, by uh, white flight and disinvestment. Um, and through that time, historic districts uh, were islands of stability, sustained by small-scale investments by homeowners uh, uh, who felt that historic districts gave them some security that their investments would be, would be protected by uh, the property. They have a property right to build, but they also have a property right to essentially a regulatory right to prevent others from developing inconsistent structures around them, enhancing the value of any particular property in an historic district. This urban revival, of course, has other uh, more powerful endogenous causes than, than historic preservation. Large-scale changes in the global economy uh, uh, wrought by technology, communications, and mobility of people and capital. In short, an economy based on intellect sophisticated intellectual skills, where much research and managerial work can be performed anywhere, uh, trained workers are recruited nationally and internationally, uh, in part uh, based upon the attractions of the setting. Uh, and part of this is the density of shared knowledge, the much-discussed agglomeration effect, but part also of the social and cultural attractions for the non-work lives of the workers. Uh, well, whatever the causes, leading U.S. cities have seen remarkable population growth after years of decline and stagnation. 
Um, oh, I don't know what I do. Um, uh, New York City's population has grown by 5.5% between 2010 and 2017. Washington, D.C. has grown by more than 100,000 people uh, since, 19, since 2010, uh, uh, after decades, decades of, of decline. Okay, so, but these economic factors that lead to the rehabilitation of cities also have driven an alarming increase in economic inequality. Federal policy has played a nasty role here, worsening inequality through regressive tax spending and educational initiatives. Um, uh, all of us are familiar with these things, and a question is the extent to which historic preservation plays a role, and that was brought up by several people this morning. Historic preservation has been a target of people who argue that greater density uh, are, are going to reduce housing costs and create a more, a more equitable, a more equitable city. I want to so so that that's that bring that's a sort of a rapid uh, run up to today. I want to describe. I want to I want to uh, discuss uh, three topics here that are focus focuses for discussing changes in the law. Uh, the first is changing perspectives on historic significance. Um, uh, and then I'll talk about gentrifying cities and then climate change. Uh, historic preservation, like the discipline of history itself, has to confront the question of the perspective from which historical accounts are told. And just as American history began with pious accounts of the life of George Washington, so did historic preservation begin with museum houses associated with patriotic figures. Um, uh, through the first half of the 20th century, preservation mostly focused on the homes and workplaces of white, affluent men, uh, although women were conspicuously uh, engaged in preservation activism. Uh, some ill-informed critics seem to think this is still the case, but what counts as significant heritage has massively broadened out uh, by now, as the field of history itself now studies all sorts of people and human endeavors through new forms of technique and new forms of inquiry. Um, uh, the National Register of Historic Places, for example, lists all kinds of tangible resources, significant for national, state, local, and culturally specialized communities. And this has contributed to a vitalizing democratization of preservation resources, embracing the tangible legacies of all racial and ethnic groups, as well as women, workers, and the LGBT. LGBT community. And the democratization of preservation has also affected municipal preservation, where modest row houses, warehouses, automobile showrooms have typified the listed resources much more than stately homes. Um, uh, um, the growing breadth of uh, historic, of ideas about historic significance uh, it, uh, it can be exemplified, for example, in DC. Uh, this, is the, this is the home of Frank Kameny. Uh, and as you can see, it's an extremely modest uh, sort of Georgian adaptation house in Northwest Washington. Frank Kameny was an early gay rights activist who was extremely significant in bringing together uh, people who worked on uh, LGBT rights in the federal government. And it is a designated individual landmark. Um, uh, uh, recently, the, uh, the oh, where'd it go? There it is. Recently, the DC Historic Preservation Board designated uh, a neighborhood called Kingman Park, a neighborhood of extremely modest row houses, uh, as an exemplar of, uh, of, of a neighborhood developed for African Americans during the period of segregation, 
Uh, and this tells, of course, a very interesting story uh, that might otherwise uh, have been, uh, have been uh, invisible. Many, many other examples could be mentioned. So, but such an extension of ideas about historic significance, while justified on historical grounds, also extend the scope of preservation regulation. Observers uh, who know much about history may not see much aesthetic value in such modest homes or ordinary commercial buildings. Uh, Anthony Flint, the, uh, the, the president of the Lincoln Institute on Land Use uh, in Boston, recently had a column in the Atlantic uh, Magazine, at least their website, uh, in which he, may, he sort of treated as risable the fact that Los Angeles had designated a 1940s uh, gasoline service station as an historic landmark. But if you think about it, in the history of Los Angeles, it really tells a lot of what is significant about, about that city. Mm -hmm. But the compliance with preservation standards has costs as well as benefits. Uh, and uh, there's a real question in the mind of people who are not preservation enthusiasts as to whether, this, uh, whether it's worth it. And this can be greatly exacerbated when, pres when the preservation commissions apply curatorial standards to, uh, to, to development within these neighborhoods that are appropriate for singular architectural developments. Uh, there, can be a, there can be a mismatch between faithfully representing the historic legacy of formerly marginalized people in vernacular buildings with applying standards developed for the aesthetically ambitious homes uh, of the rich and famous. Uh, and this political cognitive dissonance uh, has hurt preservation uh, and it's made it much more difficult to designate uh, these, these communities even when their historic value is great. Um, This morning, uh, there was also there, there is this related problem that, pre that presses historic preservation that the laws don't deal with very well, uh, that the telling the history of formerly marginalized people often can't be done through simply uh, uh, preserving and restoring buildings because the buildings don't actually tell the story. Uh, you have to go beyond that to tell the story. Uh, and um, um, Dolores Hayden, who's a professor of architecture and American studies at Yale, has written compellingly about efforts to, to do this uh, through collaborations uh, with the relevant communities and uh, artists and historians to tell these stories uh, more, more fully. Uh, and in her book, she discusses in particular the developments in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles in which the buildings that were left were extremely modest and gappy, uh, and they used a great deal. Uh, they used a great deal of new art uh, and storytelling and digital uh, digital information to be able to tell the story of the Japanese community in Los Angeles. And all these things are really outside of the administration of historic preservation law as we as we've come to, as we've come as we've come to know it. Um, well, I want to, uh, the, the, the risk in going outside of simply preserving existing buildings, of using art to tell the stories, of course, uh, is a risk of pious myth-making about these communities. Uh, and I just want to emphasize that one of the strengths of historic preservation in our system has been a commitment to historic truthfulness uh, and a desire to tell, thing, to tell things as they were to the best of people's ability. 
often failed, but the law encourages it and indeed demands it in most places. Changing perceptions of historic pres uh, heritage raise uh, issues that I can't come to Charlottesville and ignore. So uh, does preservation law require that the statue of Robert E. Lee be retained in Lee Park downtown? The statue itself is listed on the National Register, although it's interesting that it's considered significant, of course, not for illuminating the Civil War, but for the time of its erection, 1924. And this reflects the reality that such monuments uh, reflect the ethos of their time, not the period they seek to commemorate. Uh, and in 1924, the Lee statute uh, memorialized an certainly an inherited sense of the Civil War of many people, but also a contemporary commitment to racial subordination. Uh, in my mind, the question of its removal properly should be left to its owner, the city of Charlottesville, and determined by the democratic process as the city council did by voting to remove the statue, statue by a three to two vote in early 2017 after study by an expert committee. No community should be compelled to, to continue to display openly a monument offensive to basic values of human rights as that community understands it. And certainly section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act is no barrier um, uh, in the absence of the use of federal money the Virginia statute, which, uh, pursuant to which a state judge ordered Charlottesville to remove a shroud from the statute, is not a preservation law. It prohibits localities from removing any war memorials without regard to their age or historic significance. Removing a statue of a person like Lee does not deny his historic importance. Uh, it does not so much express a judgment on Lee himself as on the impetus to protect his leg project his legacy as suitable for today. Uh, preservation inevitably seeks, uh, selects the past uh, that, peop uh, that people want to entwine with their own time. And this is particularly true with monuments, which, uh, are, uh, which create public images of the past to express meanings for the present. And when those meanings are contested, the monuments will become controversial. Uh, we all maybe remember from history books in school the Sons of Liberty tearing down statue of George III uh, as part of a protest against the Stamp Act or images of people in the Eastern Europe pulling down statues of Lenin or Stalin. Uh, and uh, all of this activity I think falls outside of historic preservation. All right, I want to talk a bit about gentrification and, and, uh, and cities. Um, we've talked about the extent to which they have undergone tremendous changes, uh, and these have subjected historic preservation regulations to new questions and critiques. Critics argue that preservation has grown beyond its appropriate sphere, laying its restrictive controls on too many buildings with too little historic merit, impeding the development of housing needed to meet demand, uh, thus raising prices and excluding lower income persons from reviving neighborhoods. These critics, uh, critics, economist Ed Glazer, for example, often extol density as a nursery of creativity, giving rise to innovation. Uh, and the Obama administration produced a report suggesting that the inability of people to find affordable housing in cities was impacting and slowing national economic growth. These critiques all share an appeal to a common good, rather than an appeal to the private interests 
that were typical of older battles about historic preservation and property rights. And they support legislative reforms to limit designation or loosen administrative review of demolition and alteration uh, uh, plans. Not all, these, uh, not all these critiques are well taken. Uh, Ed Glazer, for example, complains that uh, historic preservation, that in New York, makes much of the fact that 16% of the land in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, is under the jurisdiction of uh, Landmarks Preservation Commission. But of course, that means that 84% is not. Um, in Washington, D.C., has surely has a very high percentage of total land covered by historic preservation, nearly 20%, but has in the past decade constructed new housing at a rapid rate not seen since World War II. Um, even if historic districts were encased in amber, which they're not, developers would have nearly the entire city to build without preservation uh, limitations. Um, let's see. Skip that. One, of, one interesting uh, version of this is uh, that studies have shown that, uh, that property values increase most rapidly in neighborhoods adjacent to historic districts rather than historic districts themselves. And uh, near where I live on Capitol Hill in Washington is a neighborhood often referred to as the Navy Yard, which is growing at, a, at a, an enormous rate, it will soon become the densest neighborhood in Washington, and was recently uh, named by Forbes magazine as one of the 12 coolest neighborhoods in the world. <laughs> Who makes these things up? I don't know, but uh, 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 that's pretty good. There are only two in the United States that were listed. This neighborhood has many things going for it, but one of the things that's most valuable is its proximity to the Capitol Historic District, which gives a stability of uh, places for people to go and interest for them. So there really need not be uh, a strong conflict between preservation and development, and I appreciated. Uh, the remarks uh, before about things like accessory uh, dwelling units and things like that, all very important. Uh, but vacant land uh, is the most valuable asset, and there still is a lot of it in, 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 in a lot of cities. Um, it's nonetheless, it's reasonable to demand that preservation law accommodate other public values, such as sustainability, affordability, and the need for public facilities. Accommodation does not mean that preservation review should be skipped or toothless, but primarily that tr tr preservation law provide transparent procedures for weighing preservation against other public values and goals. Uh, public preservation often began in opposition to planning and to other uh, and to zoning, uh, as seen by activists as 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 leading to the demolition of historic neighborhoods in the hands of grandiose planners such as Robert Moses. Um, not surprisingly, the ordinances passed uh, at that time contemplate only preservation values and entrust decisions to separate commissions um, uh, apart, from, uh, apart from zoning or planning offices a hope to be the agents of preservationists. Preservation laws often issue balance balancing of preservation against other planning values because of distrust of a planning process which had ignored cultural heritage values for a long time. Um, but as preservation has become more mainstream, it has inched toward playing more nicely with other development institutions, 
but the law has not always provided workable structures to make the accommodation transparent and coherent. Uh, I want to suggest some ways that we could do that. First, preservation ordinances should contain safety valve provisions that permit the demolition or alteration of a designated building when necessary to achieve an important public purpose. This assumes, of course, that the ordinance prevents demolition <laughs> or postpones it. But when it does, there should be an explicit balancing process. Washington, D.C. has such a provision since the law was enacted. Um, and it has strengthened rather than weakened the effectiveness of the preservation law. How does it work? Well, the proponent of a project must first get approval of plans for new construction from our Historic Preservation Commission under normal procedures and standards. Uh, this assures that the new project will be consistent with the character of the site or the district. The proponent then must bring an action before an administrative age official known as the mayor's agent and show by preponderance of an evidence that the demolition is necessary in the public interest. The act defines necessary in the public interest to mean consistent with the purposes of the act or necessary to construct a project of special merit. Uh, projects of a special merit are defined to uh, involve those that inv have a plan or building having significant benefits to the District of Columbia or to the community by virtue of exemplary architecture, specific features of land planning or social or other benefits having a high priority for community services. Now, this language is a bit gnarly, but, it, it, uh, but the courts and the mayor's agent have construed it so that by and large only projects that have a palpable benefit for the whole community will be found to have special merit and this decision is essentially based on the terms of the city's comprehensive plan. Um, uh, it has to be necessary, the demolition has to be necessary uh, to do that. Let me show you a couple of pictures if I can find them. Oh, that was good. So this is, this, is, this is a case of exemplary architecture, the arena stage uh, buildings in southwest Washington. The, the one on your, uh, on your left is the original building, which is a landmark. It was designed by Harry Weiss, who was a famous Chicago architect and the architect of Washington's metro system. Uh, but it, it, as you can see, it has, has some, some negative uh, aspects to the design. It was, re it was essentially the original buildings were encased in this sort of glass and concrete uh, covering and created a, a very striking and beautiful uh, uh, structure, even though it involved some substantial demolition of the original site. Uh, but this was considered by the mayor's agent to be exemplary architecture. Uh, here's another one. Uh, and this is one that, uh, this, is, this is a very controversial one. We have a large sand filtration site that's part of an early water purification system right in the middle of Washington, 20 acres of land. Uh, to build on it, you need to demolish the underground cells that the water used to run through. Uh, and the mayor's agent has found that it is a, that the, the proposal to build a mixed-use mixed mixed community above it that involves affordable housing, recreation parks, market rate housing, and office to be a project of special merit. Um, and this has been intensely controversial. A mayor's agent founded Project of Special Merit. The District of Columbia Court of Appeals remanded it. The mayor's agent found it to be a Project of Special Merit again. It's back in the District of Columbia 
uh, court. And uh, reasonable people can differ about the outcome or the appropriateness of the mayor's agent's judgment. But we have a transparent legal process that allows a balancing under law based on evidence and a record to make a decision based on the public interest. And um, my, uh, my contention is that, the, that this is an extremely useful device for any city to have regardless of how they would strike uh, any particular benefit. I suppose I should say that, you know, I'm the mayor's agent, so I made the decision. I think it's right. Uh, I know the National Trust doesn't necessarily agree with me. Well, not you. I'm not talking about you. But, uh, some, of our, some of our esteemed colleagues don't necessarily agree with the decision. But, uh, but it, there is a legal process. One of the things about having a safety valve provision like this is it takes a lot of pressure off of designation. Uh, this property would never, probably may, may well never have been designated if you could never have done any demolition on the site. Um, uh, are, uh, some, uh, uh, you, there are notorious cases in New York and Chicago. That, that this one is, I think, heartbreaking. This is the Prentice Hospital in Chicago, uh, which was demolished in 2013. And this is, uh, this is a, a, a lovely piece of Chicago architecture and very significant for the development of their aesthetic. It was, and uh, North, it's owned by Northwestern University, my alma mater. They wanted to demolish it and build a scientific laboratory on that site. Well, essentially what happened is that the this is how Chicago works, the mayor told the Preservation Commission that they couldn't designate the site. So this all happened in an opaque box in which nobody could really get a handle on what the trade-off in values were, except it occurred in a back room, in a back room uh, political deal. Um, I think that uh, preservation would be much stronger if it was out front. Um, I also think that, uh, and I'll rush through this part, that uh, preservation uh, designation should be at different levels of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of value and significance. Uh, they do this in England. We typically have just you're either designated or not. Uh, but it means that for all the buildings that are designated, the same standards are applied, and I think you very often get a mismatch. Um, so there are a variety of ways in which preservation has to be, for many properties, less strict, less curatorial than it has been. And the tradition that's been handed down through the profession of historic preservation architects uh, often involves uh, a very strict um, uh, account uh, as exemplified by the Secretary of the Interior Standards for Historic Preservation. I do want to give a shout out for Sarah Bronin's use of, of form-based code in, in Hartford, which I think spreads out a sort of a cultural heritage uh, spread over so much of the city without, uh, without too much uh, regulation uh, and interference with development. Okay, a uh, few brief words about climate change and then I'll stop. Uh, we don't need to go over what the degree of the existential threat that uh, climate change provides. Uh, that was all nicely brought up this morning. Um, the connection between climate change and historic preservation is complex. For example, it's obvious that many precious historical resources are at severe loss. Uh, Venice last week had a meter and a half of water in it, uh, and this is going to what it's going to look like in many eastern uh, and, and Gulf Coast cities from Boston to Annapolis to Miami. Um, and vast archaeological resources may be lost too. Uh, 
Um, and also, as people retreat from the coast uh, or from regions no longer capable of supporting agriculture, historic structures are likely to be abandoned, and a lot of intangible resources will be lost as people are dispersed from their traditional areas. Our preservation laws are quite inadequate to deal with these threats because their duties, their processes are triggered by human acts, such as petitions to demolish uh, a building or construct something new uh, in an historic district. Climate change threatens historic resources without identifiable human initiative. Indeed, the problem often is human inaction. Uh, and uh, so we need to develop uh, more aggressive mechanisms and planning to deal with climate change. And, and our laws are simply not, uh, are not are currently are not up to it. Um, uh, I'm going to skip over uh, points about adaptation because those were dealt with today. Preservation laws can also be seen as an impediment to taking the urgent action necessary to reduce emissions. Um, and indeed, preservation law seeks to shape those initiatives in ways that don't do harm to historic uh, resources. Uh, and in urban areas, controversies can erupt over homeowners' desires to install, for example, double-pane windows or rooftop solar panels. Um, and we need to uh, develop very clear standards and very streamlined procedures to allow these, uh, these efforts to go forward. Uh, and indeed, some of these alterations may be to be done if they meet, uh, if they meet design criteria without, without permits at all. Um, but preservationists have also argued successfully that preservation contributes to sustainability in the face of climate change. Uh, uh, we talked this morning about how urban districts that are reasonably dense with mixed uses are walkable uh, uh, and, and, and uh, involve less emissions, less automobile use uh, than others. And they've provided the templates for new urbanism, as we've discussed, as discussed this morning. Uh, more fundamentally, historic preservation makes dense urban living more humane. Uh, by creating a, an environment of meaning and beauty uh, they, uh, and a scale uh, that is more familiar, they make it easier to live in dense cities. Preservationists have, of course, uh, effectively made the point that the greenest building is the one that's already built, uh, and the awareness of the environmental costs of demolition, the production and transportation of new construction materials should pervade planning approaches to development. Preservationists can argue that the sense of solidarity or community that heritage conservation seeks to nurture provides a moral asset essential for confronting the social changes, social challenges of climate change. Yet a sense of solidarity based on a shared heritage can divide as well as unite. As people view their heritages from different perspectives, questions about what to respect can be bitterly divisive. And this concern may be exacerbated uh, if we face massive human uh, migration uh, pushed by uh, climate change. Various studies have estimated that many millions of people will be forced to move by climate change, both within countries and across borders. Uh, and we've seen the conflict generated by resentment against immigrants and refugees, both in our country and in others. And it's a great challenge as to how we can honor diverse cultural traditions 
while remaining open to our common humanity. This is a central challenge to global citizenship and historic preservation disputes are going to be a focus, one of the many focuses in which we're going to try to navigate those challenges. At this point, and I'm coming to the end, let us remember that historic preservation and environmentalism grew up together. They're at least first cousins uh, with a strong physical resemblance. The first great victory for environmentalists in federal court, Scenic Hudson Preservation Conference versus Federal Power Commission was in 1966, was as much about protecting the aesthetic integrity of a cultural, of an, of an, of a cultural landscape as it was about protecting fish or water quality. Health, beauty, and meaning are all essential elements of any plausible good life for people. So in conclusion, historic preservation has contributed enormously to the livability of our cities, providing many with a sense of cultural continuity, an aesthetic inheritance, and an appreciation of those neighbors who went before. Its success has increased its scope and raised legitimate questions about its coordination with other legitimate urban values. Uh, and endogenous changes in the world economy and environment have magnified these challenges. There is great scope here for a new generation of lawyers to uh, uh, preserve and restore the key elements of what works while adapting the larger legal structure for new purposes. Thank you. <laughs>